it's a rare and amazing thing when we as marketers have something to sell that everybody needs in a really true way. And ultimately, I really believe bar none, our commercial mask was the best one. Welcome to the Channel Mastery Podcast. If you're a specialty business and brand leader obsessed with understanding what the most effective channels are today to connect with, serve, and sell to your target consumers, then you've just found the perfect podcast and community. My name is Kristen Carpenter, and I'm your host and the founder of Verde Brand Communications, the presenting sponsor of Channel Mastery. Verde created the Channel Mastery Podcast to level the playing field for the specialty brands we serve. Every week on this show, we study how consumer preferences are changing and the evolving channels they like to use to engage with their favorite brands. Once again, welcome to Channel Mastery and subscribe today. Welcome back, everybody, and Happy New Year. We finally made it to 2021. And welcome to another episode of the Channel Mastery Podcast. We are so excited today to have Andrew Osborne, who is the VP of Brand Creative at Outdoor Research, a beloved Verde Brand Communications client. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, everybody. Super happy to be here. Thanks again for the invite. How happy are you that we're in January? (laughs) You know, I'm really happy. It's been a trying year, but an exciting year. So I'm excited for 21 and hope that there's some goodness in it. Me too. So let's start by talking about, I mean, you bring such an incredible body of work to your role at Outdoor Research during an incredibly pivotal time. So let's talk about what you did prior to Outdoor Research and then when you started with the company, and then we'll kind of get into the meat of the interview. Yeah, that sounds really great. So I joined Outdoor Research after basically 10 years in creative studios working every job that you could have on the design side of advertising agencies from you know design intern, junior designer, mid-level designer, senior designer, up through sort of the creative direction track, focusing more and more on strategic communication, uh, broad, broad source communication strategy, and just bigger picture challenges and bigger picture solutions that weren't just visual. So after about 10 years of that, I joined OR to sort of lead a strategic rebrand and uh, implement uh, a new brand across the organization. That sounds so light and airy. Let's talk about when you actually joined (laughs) (laughs) and where you were when you accepted the job, because this is, I think, where we kind of get, where we see the metal involved in this man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that clarification question. So I lived in Amman, Jordan at the time. I was working remotely. My wife works for a humanitarian organization. So we were living in the Middle East. She was working the Jordan office for an organization called Mercy Corps. So I was working remotely for an agency based in Portland, Oregon. By that time, I was working primarily on our athletics clients, exclusively with outdoor and athletics, primarily on Adidas, actually, Adidas training. And so when the opportunity comes to join one of your favorite brands, you just sort of react emotionally, right? It's a brand that I grew up skiing in and climbing and entrusting their gear sort of really consequential moments. So when the opportunity came up, I moved back to Seattle and took over, yeah, to implement a rebrand and and lead sort of a digital transformation for the organization. That's amazing. And that was right. That was in Q1 of 2020, correct? (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah. So if you can jump in your time machine and try and remember what Q1 of 2020 
looked like. It was a comfort that we didn't know we had. I think it was maybe eight weeks after my first day, we had our first shelter in place. And I remember laughing on our first corporate happy hour about how weird the next two weeks will be as this COVID thing sort of peters out. Um, Little did we know that we'd be sitting here in January of 2021 talking about the reality of it still being around and us still being in some measure of isolation and, and shelter in place, you know, where your geography is. And you worked with a team who I think epitomizes almost like a shortstop, like you're just ready for what's going to come to you, right? And the way that the team pulled together with that proactive, I wouldn't even say it was like you're on defense. You were one of the brands on our roster that felt like they somehow were able to have a company culture on offense, even though there were no plans and no plays (laughs) that you could call. What was it like for you to kind of come from the agency background and work with some of the amazing brands that I mentioned in the intro to going in-house with a brand like this during a time like that? I mean, talk about getting to know each other during a trial by fire. Yeah, I actually love the analogy that you just used, Kristen. It was Dan Norse from our, one of our owners, one of our founders. He's sort of a, a patriarch of sorts. He always says, don't never waste a crisis. So that attitude really permeates the building. And as an organization, we have a lot of people who are sort of young in their tenure in the organization. And all are coming from you know really pretty burly experiences. And so for me specifically, coming from an agency background, you exist much more nimbly in the agency world. Right? You're sort of always reacting, always learning, iterating, and implementing new solutions. And so when 2020 sort of showed us its true self, we sort of snapped into a little bit of that reaction. Right? There is always opportunity in a trying time. And we saw that. We saw the opportunity to bring a new product to find the market, implement some of these rebrand structures, and really do so in a manner that was really true to the history of the organization. The way I like to say it is, we've always been the same organization. We just have a nice, clean way to talk about it now. Oh, that's really cool. That leads me to a question that just sort of came into me as you were talking right there. And that is about conveying the value proposition, the innovation, the heart and soul of the company to your stakeholders without in-person meetings. That must have also thrown a big wrinkle into how you are used to getting the ball across the goal line. Yeah, it's such an interesting challenge that so many people are are facing right now. For me personally, before moving to the Middle East, I was the first guy out in a Portland location of my studio. And that studio grew significantly. So for the last five to seven years, I've been some measure of the remote guy. So I've actually been quite comfortable in the current landscape. So I'm used to the tools. I'm used to communicating via text. And these skills that everybody's sort of learning for the first time, you know, feel quite familiar to me. So I'm sorry, can you repeat your question? I I, I launched down to weird (laughs) remote tools. No, and honestly, like that's actually perfect because you are epitomizing a person who comes into this, you know, ultimately conveying the story in a way that's easy to do. You know how to use those tools, yet you are now on a team with sales reps, VP of sales, VP of all of these different um, people who are very used to seeing like, okay, here's my calendar year. These are my big initiatives that have been on my calendar, no matter what company I've been at for like 25 years. They're no longer there, yet I have a new brand story that I need to get across to these folks and I have to do it remotely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that the reality of the remote work landscape is 
everything that you communicate, everything that you articulate has to be so intentional and so empathetic that we really tried to over-empathize, over-emotion things, and really make it very clear in our presentations that we were excited about this. Because if we're not excited about it, then nobody else will be, right? Which is pretty exciting, right? Like there's goodness in that. So, you know, I showed up to every meeting over-caffeinated with a presentation that was well-rehearsed. So it felt like I was communicating to those around us that you are the most important person that we have to talk to. We are well-rehearsed. We are well-prepared. We know how to use our tools. And that, I think, really instilled a level of trust and shared excitement in people that we were able to really jump into while others were still sort of learning digital platforms and digital tools. Um, We were able to really focus on the humanity within it and the empathy needed to use these tools sort of to their fullest. Okay, that right there is gold. I want to stop and just reiterate that because you're talking kind of from a B2B and internal workforce, internal team, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. ad outdoor research, but think about that in your, um, anything that you're putting out from a content perspective across the consumer decision journey. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, like that is a, it's a, the humanization of it and how you're telling that story. And I think the frequency and the way you're furthering it, it has to be, I think, delivered in a way uh, that is going to be a little over the top to catch the attention and create the trust and stoke the fire of the people who are consuming it, whether they're your sales reps your internal workforce um, or or retail buyers or the consumer. All of them have that human innate want for that. Would you agree? I ab- Absolutely. And I feel like the, the landscape of 2020 has only reinforced that. Mm-hmm. It's accelerated all of this consumer mindset trend that we've been seeing for the last you know, 24 months to, to three years of focus on sustainability, buying more than a product, wanting to be a part of a community, it's, it's accelerated all of that. And so when you approach these content systems empathetically and try and put yourself in the, the consumer's mindset uh, and bring them to the front of that, of that decision-making tree, bring that into the front of that process, um, rather than starting with a, a product or an idea and trying to, to tell it to a consumer at the end, uh, it really makes a meaningful commitment connection, I think. So let me ask you this too. So you as a, and a a person who leads apparel, you know, an apparel company, like there's, you have product, like we actually have the good fortune at outdoor research to be able to tell brand stories as well as product innovation stories. A lot of people in the channel mastery audience are in the hard goods world and they're really, really suffering sourcing and supply. And I'm not saying your product is, you know, perfect and everywhere it needs to be. Everybody's had huge challenges, which I'm anticipating as are many of, you know, the people in our audience, 2021 will continue to keep us on our toes that way. However, what do you see as the mix? Because you had the luxury of having product available, maybe not through retail, but you had product available. People could find it. People could buy it. What was the ideal mix for you to do brand-oriented storytelling versus product-oriented storytelling in 2020 as the consumer was evolving? Yeah, I think this is, this is a, a question that if you, would have, if you would have asked me this question, I don't know, the middle of last year, I, I wouldn't have had a clean answer for it because mm-hmm. the reality is in the midst of 2020, we relaunched our brand. So by, by, the, by necessity, we had to tell a brand story. Um, but there's also 
the the inherent necessity of of selling goods because we we ultimately are uh, an apparel company. Mm-hmm. So the the right mix to me is is not necessarily dividing the two, but but making them complementary. So mm-hmm. all of your brand storytelling has inherently a, a product foundation, and all of your product storytelling is told through the lens of a unique brand perspective. Is that well articulated? Absolutely. And I think that that's something, again, like that we we still don't have a playbook because things are still settling out and moving into wherever it's going to go in 2021. But what we've been talking about on the podcast a lot is how important it is to look at the things you've learned that you know work in 2020. Mm-hmm. They may not stay identical in terms of a strategy or a tactic for 2021, but it's not like we we were back in in uh, March, April, May, where we were sort of just like, let's give this a try and see what happens, right? So true. So, so that, true. yeah, and and I don't think a lot of um, you know, as we are going through with our brands, like a lot of the budget building and the strategic planning that we normally do in November and December, that was a really interesting process. So let me ask you this: on that front, like you led a rebrand through a, pan- a pandemic year. How did you, like, are you planning for an entire calendar year uh, for 2021? Are you taking it by quarter? Like, what's your strategy? I don't want you to give away the farm, obviously, but can you give us, like, what? how did you approach your strategic planning? Our strategic planning, specifically for, from a marketing standpoint, is, is both on, it's designed to be both proactive and reactive at the same time. So we have our, our day in, day out, product stories that uh, is aligned to our go-to-market calendar that is um, really supporting a, a fantastic product process uh, at Outdoor Research. But then above that, our, our brand marketing process is strategically loose and reactive to be focused on the culture as a whole and connecting that unique brand perspective to the culture that's happening at that moment. Okay. Yeah, so we've we've created a a content strategy for that that brand marketing level that sits on top of or adjacent to, depending on how you like to create mental maps. Um, that brand marketing layer that sits on top of uh, is designed strategically to be very reactive, and we that content strategy that we we've, we've created for that is we've created criteria for that. So we test against these criteria to see if it's a worthy pursuit for us. If, if this um, ticks all of the boxes, for example, and those three boxes are true. Uh, is it a true story, especially now in, in, in 2021? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation. So we want, we want to make sure that we're focused on true stories. Uh, evocative um, to us, lukewarm is the, the worst possible outcome. Um, so it must evoke some emotion, love or hate. It will evoke emotion uh, and timely. Um, you heard me speak about the, the that sacrifice of making sure that things are, are relevant in the moment and focused on culture and reactive. Now, this timely piece, this final piece of, of timely, um, will will often sacrifice some measure of of polish for relevance. Uh, so that's true, evocative, timely, and those are sort of the the three criteria that our brand marketing needs to needs to tick. Oh my gosh, that is absolutely such good information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's um, uh gosh this could i mean this could easily be a, a, a seven hour podcast if you get me too too riled up about some of the criteria and, and brand expression elements that we have um that we've sort of been been building out so have you had any um, pleasant or surprising surprises around new channels or existing channels and how your consumer was engaging with those channels over 2020? Great question. Let me think about this for a second. I think I can prompt you on one. Yeah. YouTube or video. Like, tell us how you've seen that evolve. Cause obviously there's like the fatigue of it, but then there's like, it's such a weird thing as a consumer. I want, every bit of new content I can get my hands on around the things I'm passionate about, but then I'm on video all day and dealing with video all day. And there is a true thing around um, panels, webinar fatigue, Zoom fatigue. And so it's so bizarre because I finish my day, I kind of get through dinner, dealing with my daughter, et cetera. And then I get it to relax and I'm like, where's my cycling content? (laughs) Right, right, right. So I'll I'll respond sort of in, 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 in two ways to this. First, um, with the pandemic, with budgets b- being trimmed, uh, understandably, we sort of contracted to the channels that we really knew would return for us. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those being video, but with this new brand marketing practice, we started creating long format documentaries that will be launching throughout Q1 and, and all of, of 2021. Uh, so stay tuned, stay tuned for that. But we've seen people sort of run to the, to the margins on this video content. So exactly what you're saying of, of this, this video fatigue, we're seeing like six second videos do well and longer format documentary pieces, because if you're engaged all day in video, you either want like very quick hit snaps of content or to really talk into a, uh, a, a series or something that you're really passionate about. So that's sort of like like the the three to four minute piece we're we're sort of shying away from and, and we're rushing to the edges of long form documentary content and and real quick hit like six to fifteen second video snaps. Okay. That's awesome. And that brings me back to um, a question I had about your presentation at the OR sales meeting. So a little bit of inside baseball here. Um, the evolution of the consumer mindset is something you talked a lot about. Yeah. Can you fill us in a little bit on your vision for that? Yeah, this is, as consumers, as individuals, as humans, we, how we interact with brands changes and evolves at all times. We go through these micro paradigms where we're really excited about a certain trend. Um, cranberry juice popped off uh, last year with the the viral cranberry juice video along with Fleet, Fleetwood Mac. So there's these like really like interesting, exciting micro trends that happen. But then there's also macro trends of how consumers interact with brands. And those macro trends, I, I get really interested and excited about when we move from one to the other. So from like, uh, we'll call it 1960 to 2000 was sort of one big block of a macro trend. And that was brands talking at consumers. It was product-based. It was, you need this toothpaste because nine out of 10 doctors recommend it. And it was a very one-way street. It was a very one-way communication channel. Uh, brands talking at consumers. Um, the rise of the modern web and, and social media channels sort of 
broke that down a little bit and consumers wanted to start to have a say in things. They wanted to, to be able to impact the brands and communicate with the brands that they, that they engaged with. Um, and that was sort of gave birth to uh, a little bit more of an experience um, transaction, right? So as a brand, I offer you an experience. Uh, there's product associated with it, but um, there's also an experience. This sort of gave way to the massive flagships, the, the Hollister and Abercrombie and Fitch, the REIs, um, the Nike of the world that are create that created these massive experiential flagships. Um, you you were buying a product, but also an experience. Yep. Um, this pandemic has really accelerated our paradigm shift into what we've started calling enrichment. It's an it's an enrichment conversation now, where you're buying a product, yes, you're buying an experience, yes, but you're also uh, expecting enrichment of the communities that you're participating in. Um, consumers are expecting brands to enrich their life, um, not just with a product, um, but any community, any community that I, as a brand, as a consumer, am excited about, I'm expecting you as a brand to enrich that community and participate in that community in a really interesting, um, exciting, meaningful way. Um, that enrichment, I split into cause, community, accountability, uh, culture, and personalization. And these are ways that you can break down enrichment and sort of um, use as lenses to, to look at that, that enrichment piece. So product, one-way street experience, I'm buying more than a product and enrichment. I want to impact what you're doing and I want you as a brand uh, to impact my community. That's amazing. And I love that. The way that you bring that together in such a summarized way is actually pretty remarkable. Um, I have to ask as you, because you've, you know, grown through your career where you've seen the paradigm shift from that big block of 1960 to 2000 is what you said, mm -hmm. I think, into where we are now and having this like much more animated, much more involved, much more humanized um, brands having touch points. And all around us outside of this forest that we're in and talking about right now, we've been watching the institutions fall. Sure. And that to me is also fascinating because you're coming up with the experience of the outdoor research brand without having the, the, the platform of a trade show or a consumer yeah. show. Not that consumer shows are going to go away. I mean, I personally do question unless trade shows evolve, like if that's going to be viable. However, like I'm, I'm basically saying you now have these institutionalized platforms are gone. I think consumers are probably coming to outdoor research as the source for that now, correct? Sure. Or what do you see from like a trust standpoint with consumers? Because you know, like our parents, you're younger than I am, <laughs> but our parents joined up with, with government parties, with religious entities, right? Like they enrolled and self-identified with those types of um, entities. And those are, I think, falling. And now we're seeing people enrolling with brands, which is exactly what I think you're talking about here. Yeah. And it's, terrifying and exciting and brands are stepping into those places that these religions, these governments, these institutions used to hold. Yep. I, I, I don't quote me on the data here, but there is a fantastic percentage of young people that thought tech companies have more power to impact the future than governments. Like that sounds really like, of course, right. That sounds very surface level in terms of a stat, but when you Stop for a second and think about that. Like 
a, a tech company, a brand has more impact than a global economy or than, a, a, sorry, a, the leader of a global economy, that's, that's pretty profound. That's pretty exciting. And so for, for us, what I really think this means is as brands, as brand leaders, it is our job to really just get the hell out of the way. We call it democratizing our brand. So to us, consumers are coming to us looking for what we stand for, what our causes are, what our, our, our community and accountability are. So it's on us to demonstrate that and then hand over our brand and say, no, actually, you are our brand. You are our ambassadors. You are athletes. You are community that's engaged um, via these social channels that are, that are very two-way streets. You are our brand. And we, we give you a piece of that and let you internalize that and then tell us what we should be. Very reactive, very democratized in, in our brand approach. That's insane and very cool. And let's talk about how you are approaching, like the, you can be actually very intentional about micro-influencers and influencers in this exact way. So they sure, ingest sure. it, they turn it back to you and they put it in front of their people that follow them. Mm-hmm. Um, how, t- can you talk a little bit about how that's become part of your um, rebranding that you've done in terms of, you know, tapping into people who really epitomize or personify rather where you want this brand direction to go? Yeah, I think that we even take it one step, one step past that and, and out of the marketing realm where we have an ambassador team that, that they're not just fantastic athletes. A lot of them are, um, but they're not just that. To, to be a part of our team, you have to have what we call sport-adjacent passion. You have to have something that you're uh, very good at, uh, very passionate about, that exists outside of your uh, climbing or skiing pursuit. And those types of people, to us, define us as a brand. Our story is their story. So we, we engage them from like the very beginning of a product process, very beginning of a, a, a brand film process. And we say, here's what, we thinking, what we're thinking. Are we right? If no, what, what else should we be considering? And we, we, we democratize the brand that way. Um, and so it's, it's less, it, I, it, is, it is exactly an, an influencer dialogue because then once the product gets to the end of the line, then they do, they do execute some of those, those sharing things that we want out of influencers. But it's more than that because we want them to then ultimately feel responsibility and right. ownership of the product once it gets to like a marketing standpoint. I love that. That is so smart. And it's a detail that mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't look at. So Chris Dickerson, who leads our integrated digital services at Verde, loves to see it as as we don't just look at influencers to like harvest audiences. Yeah. We want to create something that's actually going to make them super excited to share with their people. And they have to be able to hand, the client has to hand it over to that influencer to do that. That's not something they particularly love doing, but they have to do it today. Sure. You know, when we look at paradigms, social channels have made individuals brands, like direct-to-consumer brands. Like if you wanted to look at sales data from the pandemic, the brands that are doing well are the brands that have a strong direct-to-consumer practice. So a lot of us at bigger brands are saying like, okay, like how do we do this? How do we empower our retail customers? to have a strong direct business? How do we as a brand have a strong direct business? Because consumers are becoming more and more discerning and they're getting closer and closer to brands. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. 
It is. And I have to bring this up because we're getting close to wrapping up here. I want to respect your time. But I think that you did kind of a really Jedi move with how you positioned Outdoor Research's founder, Ron Gregg, who I actually had the absolute honor of going on a press trip with back in like 19 Get out of here. Yeah. So when I was a journalist, I went Heavenly on Heavenly jealous. Yeah, with Yuko, with Cascade Designs and MSR, with Montreal back when they were a brand, and then Outdoor Research. And they flew a bunch of journalists there, and we did like a four-day trip, and, and we had a whole day with Ron Gregg. And you kind of did something amazing with Ron Gregg, who is amazing and a great founder for the Outdoor Research brand. But you turned him into a modern story that really speaks to today's outdoor research consumer. And I'd love for you to talk about that because that's a quandary for a lot of specialty brands today. Yeah, I think that our tendency as brands that have grown from uh, a singular perspective like Ron Gregg is to almost use them as a mascot, right? Use this individual, this representation of them as a mascot and hang our entire systems on that personality. But what we've done is take one step back from the man and look at how he solved problems. So Ron was a working nuclear physicist when he founded out the research. He was a totally eccentric dude who spent just an astronomical amount of time outside for his work. Um, mm -hmm. And being incredibly intelligent and incredibly stubborn, he often would find solutions to problems that were better than uh, other folks. So it sort of built this this idea in his head that he could do it better. Uh, and lots of times he was right. So we peeled back some of the layers of that man, that personality, that idea, and hung our brand, all of our storytelling on how he solves problems. So being a physicist, he solved problems using the only design ethos he knew. He wasn't a product designer. He didn't have a traditional background. So he used the scientific method. He was uh, a radical iterationist. He would see a problem find a solution, and then do that over and over and over again. Um, mm -hmm. So he was a slave to this idea of innovation, this idea of iteration. And that is a, a very methodical approach to life, methodical approach to product. So as a brand, we are hanging our system, our brand as a whole, not on Ron Gregg as the, the man, as a mascot, but rather this methodical approach. So our position in any industry that we play in is to be the most methodical brand in that industry, which I get really excited about. I think that's it's a really strong position for us. Yeah, it's really true to the spirit and the ethos of Ron's approach. It definitely underpins all of the innovation and product that I've seen, including the the um, you know PPP that Outdoor Research has produced this year. And I feel we have another podcast that we're going to link to that you can find in the show notes that you can learn all about that. There's actually two that we can link to for that. But let's talk a little bit about your Q1 initiative. Take us to Mask Land. Oh, Mask Land. It's a, it's a magical place where anything goes. <laughs> um, there are no rules in Mask Land. It's a rare and amazing thing when we as marketers have something to sell that everybody needs in a really true way. And ultimately, you have the best of that thing. I really believe bar none, our commercial mask was the best one that was, that it, that was made that is currently being made. Mm -hmm. um, so to be in a position where you have the best of something and everybody in the country should be wearing that thing, it's really, it's really a place of, of privilege and um, 
really lit just a profound fire in all of us. Mm-hmm. So um, early, yeah, early Q1, our, our product team looked to our factory team who had started making cut and sew masks to be able to comply with some Department of Defense orders that we had to that we had to fulfill. We had some tactical orders that needed to that need to be finished. So how does the story go? We had some, I believe it went that we we were trying to find a thoughtful way of reopening. And the only way to safely reopen under our essential business designation was to be wearing masks at all times. Mm-hmm. So our our sewing floor there in Seattle was trying to find a way to build a mask to protect themselves. And that inspired our commercial or our commercial team saw that uh, and then iterated on that, iterated again, iterated again to build what is yeah, ultimately the the mask that you see on on the site today and really is the best one around. And I love your LinkedIn photo wearing your mask, P.S. <laughs> yeah, it's got to got to represent the brand, right? Live the Absolutely. brand. Absolutely. And everybody uh, got got those masks in my family and friend group for Christmas, and they literally like asked for them because they all got them earlier this year and they wanted new ones. So I would say you're doing a pretty amazing job with that. So as we look to wrap up here, um, we'll look for Maskland, and you know we'll definitely put links in the show notes for you to be able to follow along with that. And I'm also super excited to see what this long form video content is that you're going to be rolling out in Q1 as well. Let's wrap up by just maybe giving us a few little breadcrumbs on that. I don't want to spoil the surprise at all, but here we are, like early part of January. Yeah. So our newest and most exciting initiative is going to be these, these long format documentary videos. One will be telling the the story of Maskland uh, in in Seattle, awesome. um, profiling our essential workers in uh, both our our LA and Seattle factories as we pivoted, as we sort of looked to find a way to work in in 2020. So that's the the first one. The the other two I'll I'll, I'll maybe maintain some some secrecy around as we refine the story on those. But yeah, the the first film we're calling Essential, and it's about our essential workers. Uh, in in Seattle and and as they pivoted to to make cut and sew masks and then ultimately how the team built a FDA approved clean factory on the third floor in our Seattle headquarters. It's a, it's a really incredible story. Um, it is over the course of of yeah three and a half months translating a dirty warehouse building into an FDA approved manufacturing facility for N95 and ASTM level three surgical masks. Yeah, it's an incredible undertaking and the team that has, has pulled it off is really just something else. It is. And I mean, I almost, I, I hate to say this cause it sounds so corny, but I almost get emotional, like listening to you say that because I was, you know, not there on site obviously, but I was working with a lot of you as well as our team, watching your team go through this and lead through this. It was amazing. And I can't wait to see like, what we're going to be doing next, because ultimately if we can pull that together, well, you know, without any kind of like, there was no, um, horizon line on what we're dealing with. Not that we have a true one now, but I think you'd agree with me. Like people are feeling optimistic. Is when We know how to navigate. Yeah. Right. And we know how to navigate. We learned some things. Um, and we're using like the resiliency of human beings. I love, love, love that about us. Thank goodness. But you all were just in a class by yourselves. And I'm so glad you're telling this story because I think it's going to bring some lift to some people who are also pretty tired, right? When this hits, yeah. I mean, yeah. 
I wish I could say like, yay, 2021, it's easier. It's going to start harder. And then I think we're going to navigate probably. But I just want to say like, we have such deep respect for the work that you and the team did. And we were really proud to get the word out on it to affect more, you know, positivity out there. And I just literally still am a little bit dumbfounded at what you were able to pull off. And the fact that you were a new member of that team and just jumped right in, like without scouting the rapid, you just were like, paddle forward. You know, that's pretty rad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, the, the reality is it, it sounds and looks um, impressive from the background. But honestly, our approach was show up 7 a.m. every day and make tomorrow better than today. Wake up make tomorrow better than today. And then, you know, now that, yeah, to speak to what you were, you were just talking about, to be able to look back, to, to be able to take a breath and cast an eye at, you know, March or April of, of 2020 and, and look at how far we've, we've been able to come, look at how much we've been able to accomplish with this attitude of show up making tomorrow better than today. It's really, it's really exciting and profound. And, and yeah, emotional to, to look back at, at how far we've been able to come um, with a simple attitude of just getting to work every single day. My guess is that you had a great instinct to leave and, you know, where you were and come and join Outdoor Research, one of your brands you grew up with. But I bet you looking back now, you never thought that you were going to be part of a team on this, you know, that rose to this level. So that must have been very powerful. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today, because I think this is a great start, a very authentic start in terms of like, hey, this isn't all unicorns, rainbows and all that, but we are in a new year. And we really proved that we can rise to the occasion <laughs> and and come together and do some amazing things last year. And let's just bring that to bear on this year. And I like your um, your statement in terms of show up and make today better than yesterday. That's perfect. Yeah, it's um, we're just getting started. Like I, I truly believe that we're we're just finding our stride. The best is yet to come. I'm sure of it. And super grateful to you and your team for all of the help along the way. Ah. Uh. It was an amazing journey. I aged a lot and I know everybody there did too, but amazing journey. So yes, thank you again, Andrew. True. It was wonderful to have you on here. And I hope to have you on again, maybe once we get through the first quarter, I'd love to talk about how these long form um, documentaries went with video because that's new for the brand. And I'm really excited to see how it brings everything together from a brand narrative standpoint with the product, with the people. I mean, everything, it sounds like it's going to be incredible. So yeah, still really looking forward to that. Really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. If you're finding value in the Channel Mastery Podcast, and I certainly hope you are, I'd love to ask that you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform as well as rate and review the show on iTunes. Doing so helps more people discover the content, more specialty business and brand leaders can be helped by the incredible resources we're offering every week on the show. I also would like to invite you to join our community at channelmastery.com or verdepr.com. Sign up with your email and you'll receive special resources and content created just for friends of the podcast. You'll also receive advance notice of new channel mastery trainings and offerings. Thanks for listening and see you next week.